Hello and welcome to Little Grey Cells. It's episode four of season one. It's four and twenty blackbirds and joining me today, me, Philip Moore, <laughs> who forgot <laughs> to introduce herself. <laughs> it's Chris Thurston. Four and twenty blaze it. No. <laughs> Hi. And Tom Francis. Hello. <laughs> I like that. You didn't try to do anything clever with those numbers. No. Uh, although the blackbird connection seems tenuous to me. There's, it's, there's blackberry in this episode three. <laughs> it's tenuous in the, in the story as well. Yeah. To be fair. <laughs> so yes, we, we arrive on the, uh, on the scene. It's the seaside. It's Brighton. There's a carousel. It looks as sunny and exotic as you'd expect the English <laughs> seaside to, to look. Fabulous place to die. And then, yes, I was going to say that we draw back into the, the deathbed of Mr. Anthony Gascoigne. So, yes. Who's wheezing and spluttering his last. He's an mm. old man. Old beardy, very soon to die man with a doctor leaning over him saying, I'm afraid he's absolutely nothing we could do at all. Yep. And he's got hours. Yeah, <laughs> Mere hours. I enjoyed the doctor's business-like abdication of all responsibility at that point. I'm sorry, this one's knackered. <laughs> well, maybe it's because he can see the um, the carousel from his window. It's like, oh, you mm. fit in a go on that before yeah. my next patient. <laughs> before my next death. If, if, the, if the shot had only lingered, like maybe the camera would return to the window in time to see the doctor. <laughs> going around the merry-go-round. <laughs> having a lovely time. That Diagnosis fun. <laughs> <laughs> Diagnosis fun is the spin-off show. <laughs> but yeah, so, so it's left to poor Mrs. Hill, the housekeeper slash companion slash cook slash maid slash whatever. Sort of wife but not wife yes to um to phone his nephew and be like uh he's about to die yeah your uncle soon. yeah exactly you want to see this uncle li- alive come yes. to brighton brave the train exactly. <laughs> see the man <laughs> southern rail is the only thing standing between you and <laughs> your uncle so i'm afraid it's hopeless so yeah so that's why george Lorimer can't get there before sunday (laughs) yeah Yeah, he does yeah he says that and he doesn't actually give a reason does he He just says i can't possibly no yeah and it must have been friday at this point so he's uh he's just like wow well so we 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 find george Lorimer in in the uh, vaudeville musical theater where he works in bethnal green no less in bethnal green no less where you can still find many fine entertainment uh, entertainment venues um and he is busy, so he can't come to his uncle's death bedside. I did kind of buy that, I have to say, because he's working, right? Like he's he's at work. He works in the theatre. It's he the doing? weekend. He's holding a clipboard and watching the most atrocious Look, comedy. Pip, I've never had a real job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that he could have taken the time to go and see his uncle. That's why I kind of wanted him to give an excuse, like a more specific one, just uh, beyond, I just can't get there. Like, if he'd said, oh, there's these rehearsals for this dismal comedy I'm producing, <laughs> like, that would have been funnier. Yes. But yeah, so so he's, uh, can't possibly, can't possibly attend a deathbed, because, you know, he's already watching a bunch of people die on the stage. I feel like, oh. <laughs> All right, eight out of ten cats or whatever. Oh, is that <laughs> nah. what, what? It was a good joke. Is that what they he really did? killed that musical. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> he was already dead. Okay. I think the deathbed visit has got to be higher priority than a funeral visit, right? It's like missing someone's funeral is not that bad because they're already dead, so they don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas on their deathbed, you, you, you actually have a chance to see them. Start getting trip advisor alive. reviews from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it's not really a trip. They're not going to rate their own funeral, are they? <laughs> you would, if anything, you would rate the funeral, but you'd yeah. have to go there to do that. Four out of ten didn't catch any of my best bits. Very, very depressing. <laughs> Why did they play that song? <laughs> didn't like that. Never heard of the guy either. No, but we're probably probably getting a bit of a bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we also. I mean, there was also a, a little bit of key Gascoigne family tree info in even in that deathbed scene, which was mm. that well, you know, because the doctor says, "Does he have any relatives?" and she goes, "No." Well, there is his brother, but he hates him. And he goes. <laughs> And there's no one else. Well, there's the nephew. <laughs> <laughs> and then when telling the nephew to come, um, when he says he can't make it, um, the uh, housekeeper lady says, um, oh, should I call Uncle, is it Anthony or? So Anthony is the one who's it? dying and Henry is Henry. the one who is. Mm. And <laughs> the nephew says, well. oh, no, he'd be delighted to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, okay. You've got time enough to be catty. <laughs> <laughs> like even if, even if you have an uncle who feels that way about your other uncle, it seems kind of glib of him to be like, oh no, he'd be laughing at the guy dying. <laughs> Maybe that's what music hall does to you. It just beats out any humanity that you had left. There's a sort of, there's also a thing here implied by the fact that George Lorimer has two uncles, but no parents. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me what the, so his, you know, his side of the family, either his mother gone, right? or father must be, must be also their sibling. Um, and that they must be dead. Yeah. Because otherwise that would be a factor, right? That would, at least be mentioning. Well, maybe he's just really over deathbeds then. He's like, just like, I haven't even gone. I've been to so many. Just, what have I got to do now? <laughs> but yeah, so, but then we cut to a completely different mood where Hastings is desperately listening to the cricket and Miss Lemon's in a, an overly fancy outfit, mm. uh, talking to yeah, it's, Mr. It's, P. It's nighttime in, in Big HP's house. Mm. And he is, what is Poirot doing in this scene? He's at his desk. He's, is he going through some correspondence before his dinner date with his dentist? Yes, <laughs> yes. And Hastings is desperately listening to the cricket. Which Poirot's, so sad. He does. <laughs> um, and so if you enjoyed Hastings and cars, you're going to love Hastings yeah. and cricket. <laughs> the thing Hastings is thinking about this entire episode <laughs> as he follows Poirot around. Um, and uh, Pyro is a little bit dismissive of the cricket, an English enigma. He says, "The only, the only game where the, even the players don't know all the rules," which is exactly the sort of occasional Pyro score we might expect. Might be, you know, led to expect Pyro to reserve for something like this. Sport, mm. you mean? Yeah. Yes, indeed, sport. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, so then, uh, but then yeah, he heads off to this mysterious dinner date with his dentist and, and everyone's reaction, ours on the sofa and Miss Lemon and, uh, and Hastings is, but you hate your dentist. <laughs> you absolutely hate going to see him, but apparently he's a lovely man off duty. <laughs> yeah. And he also says, explains that the dentist likes to see the product of his work. Uh, no, sorry, likes to see the final product at work. <laughs> so when he's worked on, Poirot's teeth. He likes to then see those teeth eat things, <laughs> which is a really creepy reason to want to have dinner with somebody. It is. Also because Poirot's been avoiding the dentist, because that was actually, this is a pretty much close to a callback. There <laughs> yeah. has been a previous mention Maybe of this. this is an ongoing thread that I'd missed initially, because 
Yeah, like he, he'd been avoiding the dentist, so maybe the dentist is finding a secret way to check <laughs> up on him. It's like, no, no, just a dinner date. Because clearly, not to skip ahead, it clearly works as well. Like, mm. this is sufficient mm. to get Poirot to go to the dentist. But yes, anyway. But they go to, <laughs> they go to a chop house. Mm. The bishop's chop house. Indeed. Sounds nice. It did, it did look, it look good, didn't it? Yeah. I was hungry. Yeah. <laughs> um, where Molly, the waitress, uh, remembers everyone's <laughs> order, apparently. So, I have to say, maybe, maybe, I think maybe we, we the last episode we watched suffered for this a little bit. But because, especially these early pyros <clears throat> based on short stories, they're not often the most sophisticated mysteries if we compare them to, like, the sort of locked room mysteries we were talking about last week, like Jonathan Creek stuff, or even... Um, even later feature length pyros yeah based on novels. um so uh molly the waitress basically says she does the most phenomenal exposition job <laughs> in the course of a single sentence which is like well you see that man over there that's uh she's not from the west country i don't know why i'm doing that voice um that's henry gascoigne and you see he comes in every wednesday but he always does the same thing because he hates suet and blackberry specifically those two things yeah he was here on monday we don't know why we came in on monday amazing and he had guess what suet and blackberries didn't make any sense to me but anyway he was back today and guess what he's just ordered suet and blackberries it's almost like there's two of them anyway bye (laughs) it's less heavy-handed in the story because i actually read it earlier this week it was initially for the strand magazine so it's like a really short thing it'll Hmm. take you what 20 minutes to read if that um, 24 minutes ish <laughs> i see what you did there um but it's more that he's at dinner with this man who isn't even his dentist in the in the short story i believe they're mm. just friends um and you can be friends with your dentist well yeah but i mean <laughs> i'm saying they're just friends oh, right. like, there's no sort of business relationship there I don't it doesn't think. go the next level from friends to dentists <laughs> i can't believe i'm trapped in the dentist zone again he watches me put things in my mouth he then puts his hands in my mouth you know it's like the usual the stage beyond <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> Let's take this friendship to the next level. <laughs> Dented. I'll get my drill. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but it's more about, I think they're just having a conversation because, um, Bonington is ordering for Poirot and, mm. and they get to chatting about, like, people not deviating from their usual orders and she chimes in with, um, well, women sort of are more versatile, but dudes get, like, stuck in their ways, like, take that guy over there. You know, right, like I see. He basically someone from Take That there? <laughs> <laughs> he kind of orders the same thing. Ronan Keating hates thick soup. Yeah. Is Ronan Keating from Take That? No, oh. he's from Boy Zone. Yeah, Boy Zone. Oh. <laughs> Who's from Take That? Uh, Gary Barlow. Okay. <laughs> Pretend I said that. <laughs> I prefer this, <laughs> but we're not editing that anyway. Um, but yeah, so it is a, a lot more organic in the thing. But yeah, here she just like crashes over with a bunch of <laughs> exposition and then wanders off. So yeah, that's, uh, that's Poirot's sort of intrigue. Mm, sort of his interest is, is peaked. Well, his interest is peaked by that. And his dentist friend's interest is peaked by the fact that he still seems to be having trouble with his bicuspid. <laughs> So. <laughs> and just simply must have a big old go on it. <laughs> so they both get something out of the dinner, <laughs> to be honest. So in this dinner, Poirot uh, reacts with pain when he, I think, takes a sip of wine. Um, but I sort of had the impression he ate the rest of his dinner, right? Mm. I think we So I initially, like before before he does his, oh, is that uh, bicuspid still giving you trouble? Um, I thought that it was just Poirot being really snotty about yeah, yeah, wine. <laughs> 
taste. It's just like, oh, this is undrinkable sludge. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I thought it was. <laughs> but yeah, and like, Mr. Gascoigne is there. He's like, <laughs> he's an artist, as evidenced by the beret and the slightly odd-looking cravat. It's like, oh, he wears mustard yellow. <laughs> Must be a bohemian type. Mm. Bohemian would, um, wizard. Uh, it's hard for me to entirely mock this because I... Um, uh, I remember being in like a Cornish pub where there was just a guy who looked exactly like that having dinner <laughs> on his own and the um, uh, the staff there told us about him and he's a local eccentric and he writes crazy poetry. <laughs> so this <laughs> rang very true for me. <laughs> I think it's entirely possible to sort of cultivate your look as an artist and, and actually be an artist. But it's like, I think in the context of Molly's crashing exposition, it sort of felt like everything was really on the nose so mm. far with that dinner. Yeah, particularly because he's kind of, you know, well, I won't go there, but there's also, I'll say this, the very first episode we, we you know, we watched the very beginning of season one also has an issue with disguises that are obviously a different character. Let we f- lest we forget the, the bloke in the attic and his pretend Australian <laughs> accent. Um, I think here it's more that he looks uncanny enough that it's weird rather than... Because we don't know. This is the first time we meet Henry Gascoigne, so it's not like we know he isn't him, if you see what I mean. It's yeah. just that it's obviously someone in an outfit right yes yeah yeah we can return to that at the end of the episode maybe but yes this one did fall into place rather quickly (laughs) um yes anyway so um but this is uh we cut at this point to the milk being no we cut to is it paro in the dentist or is it the milk it's the milkman okay the milkman always rings three times if you've died. <laughs> well, it wasn't ringing at all. They just leave it on the doorstep, yeah, yeah. which is how we know. Uh, how yeah, I know. Used to... What I said didn't make any sense. But... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this, though. We used to get milk delivered. And, like, obviously none of us were dead. Um, <laughs> but, like, it was it, it was an interesting marker. You could tell who was in and who wasn't. Mm. Or, like, you know, you could tell things about people. And there was also sort of an ongoing fight with blue tits over, like, them pecking their way through to get at the cream, which was quite <laughs> So, yeah. My, uh, my dad always tells a story about the time when he was at school and the teacher asked him, what animal does milk come from? And he very confidently said, a horse. <laughs> because the milkman has a horse and carriage and oh, delivers wow. the milk every day. He'd never seen a cow in his life, so why? Yeah, I suppose it's, it's delivered by the horse. <laughs> exactly. Who knows what produces it? It's the milk horse. Oh, <laughs> that's really sweet. This was, uh, in a lot of ways, a more efficient system than today's because, like, in terms of recycling, it was actual reuse, right? You gave the, yeah, the empty bottles back the and bottles. they just cleaned them and used them again, so there was no waste. Rather than today's goat walking to the mini Sainsbury's system that we have then, yeah so i remember that when the uh, milkman tried to di- diversify so like you could not only have milk but you could order like one of those glass bottles but full of orange juice yeah that was weird ask them to deliver yogurt and things mm. like they were sort of i guess attempting to do like a tesco home delivery before yeah. they had the breadth of produce <laughs> required for maybe that. just everything should come on those glass bottles like mm. chicken vegetables <laughs> <laughs> I remember my grandmother used to have like a mobile grocers that would like come to people's houses and park on the street mm. and you'd go and do your shopping and that was really Yeah, my sister actually um get out much. Uh ran a thing for a while, maybe still does, in Froome called the Veg Van, where mm. they um deliver organic veg to your door. 
It's great. I miss that because it was like it was like an actual shop that would just be in a like in a long van and you go into it and it's just really fun. <laughs> I had a great time. Um, I like every other podcast in the world has an extensive bit where they advertise like meals, <laughs> subscription services. <laughs> Not <Yeah>. this one. <laughs> no one's paying us. We're just talking about it anyway. Yeah. In abstract, milkmen are a good idea. That's it. <laughs> We're talking about things that don't really exist anymore. We miss. <laughs> Please yeah, patronize exactly. our sponsors, the abstract concept of milkmen. <laughs> it's Netflix for milk. <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> milker <laughs> but yes it's taken three milk deliveries for anyone to realize that some things are miss with your artist fella hmm. and uh so they they start whacking on the door and find out that he's not had a bath since pancake day <laughs> oh yeah that's a that's a great aside that Bizarre. that woman the, the he's not had a bath since pancake day woman is in the running for best extra as is i think one of the guys who bashes down the door in the end so they do they literally bash down the door because he has three bottles of milk and doesn't answer it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, That's so, extreme. Because you know, if, if there's an elderly person who lives on their own and you can't get an answer from the door, mm. like I think that's a legit like cause for concern. What if he gone to Brighton for three days to visit his brother who you hate? And not put a note <laughs> out to cancel the milk. Yeah. Because yeah. mm. he was worried about his brother who he hates. I mean, yeah, sure. But like, I guess if they'd sort of seen him and he had, like, if he did, because he did, they probably knew that he didn't go out or go anywhere. Well, right? the, the, the lady set even says like, oh, he passed me in the street, but mm. he didn't yeah. even give me the time of day, you know, that kind of thing. Cause it wasn't him. <laughs> um, and, um, yes. Spoilers, I guess, if mm. you're trying to watch at the same time as you're <laughs> listening to this. That's a strange <laughs> ask. Maybe uh, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, but they um they they bash down the door to find that he's only gone and carked it, mm. the bottom of the stairs, broken neck, dramatically in yeah. his dressing gown. Mm. Yeah, but then cut to little Herkel on the uh, <laughs> on the dentist's chair. Poor old Herkel, who's been taken to the vet. I know. <laughs> I was expecting the next scene to have him in a cone, <laughs> a little cone of shame. <laughs> But yeah, the dentist is um, telling him all about like, oh, you know, that guy that we saw the other day, he's dead. And like, you know, <laughs> what what do you make of that? Don't talk. <laughs> is it um, so the thing where he makes dinner but can't eat it? Is that still to come then? Yeah, that is still to come. So that's to come. after he's had his bicuspid worked on. It's it's too bad to eat. Because it seems to me that it wasn't too bad to eat in the restaurant. But I, I assume that it became too bad to eat because he'd had like something done to it. Right. Yeah, so it's like feeling or something. Or... The maybe reason he's, I'm like, in progress because I've had dental appointments where I've had to go back like the next day or whatever for them to finish a thing. I had a a theory that perhaps Poirot actually was repulsed by the wine and then was so embarrassed about her reaction. He just sort of went along with the bicuspid <laughs> thing. Like, oh yeah, yeah, it's my tooth, whatever. And so then the dentist gives him unnecessary surgery on his bicuspid, which then causes it to be painful. And then he genuinely can't eat after that. Oh, I buy it. That's kind of <laughs> That does sound like that's, that's a, you know how you call things that happen to me piplums? Yeah. <laughs> what would Poirot version of that be? <laughs> a dicament. <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Um, but yeah, and then we, uh, go to Hastings in his fancy, fancy outfit, I believe. They're calling yeah. on, they're calling on the deceased's yeah, so crime scene. Poirot immediately gets Hastings and heads over to the, heads over to, um, what's his name's house? Um, Henry Gascoigne's house, yeah. uh, to investigate, but he obviously needs to get the neighbor to let him in. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hastings is there wearing, 
he's remarkably dressed up for he the occasion. He looks like he's graduating from school. He does. <laughs> yeah, he looks like he's just been announced head boy and they've let him wear a hat. It's so cute. <laughs> He's it is the cute. best. Yeah. <laughs> but he's still distressed about the cricket more so than anything that's happening around him, I think. He's distressed at the cricket and then somehow ends up the the neighbour is using him as an interpreter for Poirot, even though the Poirot oh, yeah. speaks perfect English because oh, yeah. the English are awful, awful people <laughs> who um, treat foreigners with a very strange sort of shouty yeah. way. Yeah, so she... Um, that's that's That is... So she asks a reasonable question. She gets as far as about to let them into this guy's house before she asks, who are you? <laughs> and why am I letting you into this yes. person's house? Uh, particularly because there's already someone there, so they, which we'll find out in a minute. So she, they could have rung the doorbell. Mm. Yeah, but I guess they're not expecting anyone to be in, so they ask, right? Yeah. But also, but she knows that someone's a in. a bit of background info. He does. He does. He does. Uh, she takes to shouting everything she has to say at Poirot slowly. She, on. uh, at one point, she even... S- Te- says to Hastings, tell him, and then gives her answer yeah, to Hastings. Yeah. <laughs> and then s- says the salient bits, like, shouted yeah. at him. But, like, okay, so he goes to her to get her to let him in. If she's got a key, why mm. did they bash the door down? Presumably she got a key after that had happened. But why? Maybe she like, stole it from his corpse. <laughs> Maybe she's looking after the house. Sweet. I suppose. Mm, maybe. But not the woman who's in it who could open the door. Well, who knows? Anyway, she takes him to the house. <laughs> Explains the uh, the rudiments of where she found uh, the body and that she thinks he probably tripped on his old dressing gown cord and all that kerfuffle. And is he, like, clutching a letter? No, he had a letter in his pocket. In his pocket. Um, but we don't find that out until we visit Scotland Yard's spanking new uh, forensics department. Mm. Uh, but before that, we've got... Uh, oh, yeah, no, he uh, he knew a lady. We have a lady rendezvous. Upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it turned out that his model, Dulcie Lane, who looks kind of like Paloma Faith at Christmas time. Yeah. She's wearing really sort of... She's she's got really red hair. She's also wearing red and green, and sort of drapes herself across furniture in the way that sort of is, is designed. Yeah, she's to surrounded as well. She's absolutely surrounded at all times in this scene by nude paintings of her. <laughs> this is and this is the beginning of what turns out to be quite a nipply episode of Paro. Unusually nipply. Yeah, so like you just sort of she's chatting, and then there's just a boob like on screen, hovering next to Hastings' shoulder or something. They, yeah, it's strange because they, you know, they come in and then they're told um, about his model, and then she says, "Oh yeah, she's upstairs now." <laughs> it's like why? Yeah, it's <laughs> I can really- picturing her just like waiting for the <laughs> painting to finish. Like, yeah, why is she there? Being, I think I I got the impression that she was probably just going through some of his things because if she's right. the closest person that he mm. had, like you know, and also it's his professional things. It doesn't yeah. look like she's going necessarily through his personal possessions. He she only shows um, Poirot a picture of him and his brother when mm. when he asks. So yeah. she sort of demonstrates a kind of sultry disdain, basically, for most of the things that are going on, mm. um, including artists and so on. Um, she does sort of mention the family. So she mentions the fact that he had, uh, again, a nephew and a brother, um, but goes as far as to pick, <laughs> to pull a picture out of a, a drawer, which shows, uh, both Gascoigne boys uh, as young men where they are identical. 
and says, and, and uh, is, I think is it Hastings or her that says like, oh, they could almost be twins. And yeah. It's like, yeah, they're, they're obviously it. twins, Hastings. Like, <laughs> but so. like, I think this is the point where like, cause Poirot sort of chips in at the end, but I think uh, until this point, he's been like, got his back to them while they chat, like, and he's gouging something out of a piece of paper on, on the desk, just mm. sort of not exactly the most subtle person in the universe. And, um, it's on the way out that uh, uh, Pyro reveals his belief in the inherent suspiciousness of people with ginger hair. I don't think it's that. I think he's pointing out that Hastings has a real soft spot for redheads. So, right. of course, oh, that's I why see. Hastings doesn't think she's suspicious. Uh, yeah. It's because Hastings yeah. has never met a pretty girl that he thought was capable of murder, even though they all are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also Hastings, Hastings gets, you know, he's gets distracted by two things in this episode a lot. <laughs> one of them's cricket, and the other one is ladies. He's not really paying attention to anything that's actually happening. <laughs> no, he makes a couple of observations. Yeah, he does, but anyway, I mean... <laughs> But yeah, so then they go over to to Scotland Yard, fancy new forensics department. It's just a big room full of dorks. But every dork <laughs> has a different set of scientific apparatus. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and Jap seems sort of really proud, but then in explaining why he's proud of it, sort of explains that he and Poirot will be completely redundant <laughs> like, in a way that kind of ends on a bit of a bummer. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, poor old Jap. And like, yeah, stress. I enjoy that Jap doesn't really understand why Pyro wants half the information he's asking for. Like, Pyro's literally just wandered in to say hi and said, I need to know anything about this body. Jap's convinced it's a, you know. Open and shut case. Yeah, very much a shut case now. Um, but Pyro's like, can you just anyway, like, for all time's sake, just, you know, <laughs> give me access for no reason. Well, that's that why, because I think when he's looking at thing. He asks when the, the murder is, I think, to check with the, the dinner date that he had. Mm. And so when Jab says what it was with such certainty, Poirot asks how they can be that certain because time of death is a bit woolly and that's when they find out about the letter because mm. it must have been after the post had come. Therefore, you know, it must have been after a particular point in the evening. Right. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. From there, Pyro heads to the coroner. Yeah, pathologist. Pathologist, that's all. But yeah, like, and then I, I love the pathologist's office because it's all just like, there's loads of unlabeled drawers. Like, you know, the, the sort of card filing system that Miss Lemon has, but none of them have labels on. So it's like, <laughs> what are you doing? And then so many jars with like random body parts or organs or whatever else in. It's um, a pathologist who just yeah. doesn't know what anything is. They just put some all in anonymous drawers. Oh, there's a thing. Another thing. Another thing there. I don't know where this came from. This came out of his mouth. There. They're not very good pathologists, is the person we visit at this point. <laughs> but yeah, so then they're just chatting about death things. So, you know, the deceased ate a light supper. Enjoyed that. And, yeah. Uh, mm, I'm surprised that Soparo checks the body, checks his teeth, that kind of thing, and then doesn't necessarily bat an eyelid at the ate a light supper thing at this point, even mm. though he will subsequently bat an eyelid much later. Um, I think he stores it. Like, he doesn't. Like, he doesn't go either here nor there because I don't think he wants the pathologist to think he's questioning his mm. his decisions. Yeah. Like he's still on the sort of charm offensive at this Possibly. point. Possibly. But it is also treated as like a revelation when Pyro does 
bat that eyelid later on. Yeah. So, I mean, also, also, I really love, I mean, it is a lot of, in this episode of people having keys to doors that you don't know why they have and so on. Jap, just at length, Pyro have this information, which maybe makes sense because they have a relationship. But I love that Pyro takes the letter out of the evidence bag, evidence envelope, says like, can I have this? <laughs> like, and it, and Plod is like, yeah, I don't know, why not? Like, God knows, I don't know where I keep anything. I'm sure you're better at this than me. <laughs> like, I wouldn't know what draw to put it in. <laughs> so look, I don't know. I just, yeah, sure. Fine. <laughs> Take it off my hands. But yeah, so, and then this is when we come to the rabbit feast dinner date that you were talking mm. about. So Hastings is sitting at the table looking a bit sort of on his own and Poirot bustles in with his rabbit stew. <laughs> sort of the the special special dish that his mother used to make you know all of that stuff yeah <laughs> and, then, and what does so hastings says something about like um oh i'm sure it's better than like um hastings rabbit a la hastings or whatever yeah. yes um and then like power is really aggressive towards him he says something like uh when you grow up <laughs> oh yeah he really sh- like, shuts hastings the hell down yeah he no is at first he kind of goes yes a funny joke but when you are a grown-up Hastings, <laughs> you will realise that food is not a thing about which to be humorous. Yeah, that's it. It's something like that. Yeah. Really, yeah. Really objects to there uh, being any humour about food whatsoever. And then Hastings goes to eat with a knife and fork. Oh, that's um, wrong. And that's wrong. So Pyro jumps in and says, like, no, a knife is offensive to the chef because it suggests that the meat is tough. He is totally backseat driving his eating and it transpires that Poirot can't have any because of his dental woes, which just like, it, it's insufferable because it's like he clearly wants to eat that stuff so badly and this he's is... like, oh, I'm going to have to eat by proxy. <laughs> Hastings, tell me about it. What does he say? Don't be stingy with your praise or something. Yeah. yeah. He says like, yeah. your... don't be stinting with your praise, Hastings. <laughs> it's an amazing thing to say. Someone's about to eat your food. Please praise me more. <laughs> yeah. I like. I thought he was. Yeah, I thought he was about to say like, you know, tell me the truth. Tell me what you really think about yeah. it. He's like, no, no, no. Don't, please don't hold back in how great you think this is. <laughs> I should also, add this to like when I email um, press when I have a review code ready. <laughs> please don't hold back with the praise. <laughs> yeah. I love how um, like. I think he kind of clearly wants Hastings to say more, but Hastings is like praiseworthy English vocabulary is totally run out by this point. Yeah. Like, it was good. It's um, very rab- much more rabbity than yeah, other rabbit I've had. Like, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Really Hastings rabbity. says it's very rabbity and I think leans in and says like, yes, that is the juniper berries. <laughs> <laughs> or, or it could be the rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely like the tale of two creepy dinners because it kicks off with a dentist wanting to watch his client use his teeth. <laughs> And now it's Poirot just wanting to watch Hastings eat food he can't have. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. But then that's when, um, so Hastings sort of asks a question about the case to to try and deflect, doesn't he? Or Mm. sort of wants to know a bit about the letter or a bit about, you know, just general stuff. Yeah, and the the letter was an invitation to an art show, um, which is tomorrow, as it happens, Hastings, waggly eyebrow, Mm -hmm. cut to. Cut to Hastings not understanding Miro. <laughs> Indeed. It's like, which one is the bird and which one is the man? <laughs> like, oh. mm. So Hastings sort of, uh, is quickly schooled by Poirot on, on, you know, on Miro and then they. Yeah, the, uh, yes, the, the, the subtleties of modern art are completely lost on Hastings. But if you didn't think that was going to be the case, then that's your look at. No, indeed. But then they meet up with the, um, 
I think, gallery owner slash agent, uh, agent of Henry Gascoigne and go into the boob office. <laughs> <laughs> Please, let's discuss this in the, my boob office. <laughs> Which is, uh, yes, so you will uh, know a Henry Gascoigne painting by boob, apparently. Mm. So, yes. And this particular one is in the agent's office because it is of the artist's, <laughs> the artist's brother's wife. Yes. And, uh, after he painted it, um, uh, his brother was not happy with his wife's naked body being on display to the public. And therefore he gave it to his agent <laughs> so that his agent could have a picture of his brother's <laughs> wife. <laughs> There's also, yeah. And so the, the key fact we get from this is that, um, his agent, despite being Henry Gascoigne's agent, was forbidden from actually selling any of his paintings, which mm. is, this is our big, uh, you know, motive time. I mean, in fact, the agent tells Pyro this before he knows that Pyro's a detective. So he basically walks up the stairs with Pyro saying like, you know, well, you know, we couldn't sell anything. Only, you know, the, uh, the, the model has a few. I have a few. Indeed, maybe I have the biggest motive of all him to be dead. <laughs> what a shame. Anyway, who are you? Oh, shit. <laughs> I should point out, or maybe I shouldn't, but like, um, the, the artist model and the, um, the agent aren't in the short story at all. Hmm. Uh, entirely sort of the the TV show's edition. Um, it feels like um, it struggles for suspects. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's not a tough one to, to sort of uh, zero in on from pretty early on. And then it does introduce the model and the, and the agent and, and sort of gives them mo- potential motives, but they both seem pretty weak. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but also gives them both alibis to some extent. Mm. Um, but yes, and, but we do learn that all of Henry Gascoigne's very valuable paintings are apparently, um, just pictures of boobs, basically. <laughs> and if that stuff gets on the market, God, you'll be rich. <laughs> it's the 1930s. No other artist has ever painted a boob. Yes. <laughs> I'm 60 years old. I've never seen a boob. But anyway. <laughs> enough about you <laughs> then they take the same taxi that takes them everywhere in the world back to Poirot's house <laughs> where Hastings buys a paper and has a rev- where well, he doesn't have a re- revelation he's banging on about the cricket and talking about lunch but yes. then Poirot lunch and then revelation and pops in back to his home and so the revelation there is about the light dinner is it yeah well that's when he starts banging on about the um four and twenty blackbirds baked in a crumble mm. and you know that obviously there are some some problems there because it was it was blackberries yeah, and but- <laughs> pie but i mean neither the number on, the quantity the nor the <laughs> The casing was correct. <laughs> it's close enough. We've done more tenuous jokes on this podcast and other podcasts. Like it's not. So isn't there something early on about, obviously they use the, the letter to, uh, isolate the time of death, but doesn't he also mention, uh, ask the pathologist, oh, right, I hear you can quite precisely, uh, identify the time of death. And what does a pathologist say about that? I don't Is he just going by the letter? I think he says. Oh, I think it was that he says they they can pinpoint the the general window and then the letter helped them, you know, narrow uh, it down and it chimed with that, you know, like it right. support it was supportive evidence, supporting mm. evidence, right? But yeah, so um, Poirot starts to sort of think about food. I think that's when he the 
the lunch observation, the light meal observation maybe translates from like a just a piece of information he has to a useful clue, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean he he establishes that like the 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 body's teeth weren't stained, so it suggests that he hadn't eaten blackberries. But like is that a thing? <laughs> I mean, have blackberries changed? Yeah. Have tooth Pastes change. Blackberries make a lot of stain on your like your clothes if you get them on there. Yeah, I feel like you I can don't... eat them and uh, like whether like... your teeth are stained is very dependent on. <laughs> like... You might get stones in, uh, like the pips in your teeth, mm. right? But I, I, because that comes up in the story as well. But I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'd ever heard of mm. this idea of blackberries staining your actual teeth. Yeah, It'd be better if if um he, he had had a supper of blackjacks. And then they checked his tongue and see his tongue was not black. Because that sure is true. <laughs> <laughs> or one of those lollies that turns your tongue blue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a gobstopper or something. Um, but yeah, so then they pop in on Miss Hastings, who is getting off on some filing and raffles on the radio. <laughs> yeah, she's having a steamy old time. She really is. It's like, you know, Poirot and Hastings have been off at their boob museum, but she's just <laughs> been hanging out with raffles. <laughs> very dashing so um, she's very into like the announcer right i think she's into um the actual sort of story i think she just finds him quite sort of debonair and everything hmm. so she's essentially just listening to her radio play of a, a dude that she likes um but in the meantime she's had to do a lot of ringing around of theaters and music halls to pin down george Lorimer, nephew to the rich and famous yeah. <laughs> or whatever the wealthy and dead <laughs> and so she points them towards bethnal green and they leave her to her they don't go there though straight raffles. away do they they go somewhere um, else first they oh let me just check my extensive notes uh don't they go to see they go to a um an art gallery mm. where they stare at dulcie lane's naked body from above yeah, and, we, and, and yes, the, 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 uh, there's a, just a lot of nipple. I mean, what I'm saying is this this whole episode goes with HBO. <laughs> yes. But I think, is this the point where Poirot actually explicitly says that he wasn't the person that he saw at the diner? That that was someone in disguise? Yeah, yes. Because then Hastings is like, but why? Yeah. And then he, he's like, well, to disguise the actual time of death right yeah and it's like and it can't be Dulcie Lorimer because not Dulcie Lorimer Dulcie Lane because she's well you know a a woman with bright red hair so it probably (laughs) wasn't her dressed as an old man eating pie (laughs) putting it out there it was yeah no it was essentially like well it can't be her because look at her breasts yeah that's Hastings argument pretty much she couldn't fit those in a beret (laughs) (laughs) It would be the wrong way to go about the disguise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also it turns out she doesn't have a motive because her motive would have been the selling of the paintings, but she doesn't want to sell them. Mm. Like, they're actually important to her. And yeah. Even though she sort of comes across... Even as... though she can see her own boobs whenever she wants. It's <laughs> <laughs> not a mirror. <laughs> she comes across as not being fussed, but yeah, she's mm. actually like, no, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't sell them. Um, and then Hastings does the most awkward bidding farewell. Oh of all God, time. he really, he really like miladies his way out of that scene. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, I just, yeah. It's, oh, Hastings. <laughs> he gets, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a tad 
a tad gemberly, may I say it. Aww. It's a bit of a danger zone that Hastings skirts. Um, <laughs> but her, uh, you know, her, her, the conversation they have with her kind of points them towards the music theatre. Well, and then it's instantly just boobs, 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 isn't it? It's like just ladies in swimsuits. Yes, showgirls coming off the stage and Hastings, his eyes are just ping-ponging around the shop. Like a ping-pong. Also the camera, it's like it's following, you know, Mm. ladies in glittery hot pants up the stairs just as Poirot and Hastings come down and sort of the the handoff is from the lady bum to (laughs) to the pair of them coming downstairs. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's It's a a weird one. (laughs) <laughs> and then they go down and, and watch a couple of uh, comedians, and I use that word so loosely. Hastings <laughs> loves on it. the stage. I think yeah. that's to like sum up the difference between like uh, <laughs> it sort of tells you the sort of place that it is by how much of a good time Hastings is having and how sour faced. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh. I also like the wizard. Who, like a woman comes along, gets in a box, and then a man dressed as a wizard just wheels her off, <laughs> off shot to the left. You never see any, either of them ever again. So are they contenders for your extra of the they week? They are. Th- those two are as well. Yeah. Cause I mean, you get, obviously it's a musical, so there's going to be a magic act and, and there they are. Obviously it's not, it's not a mystery why they're there, but it is, uh, it stood out to me. I think maybe for the amount of camera time they get for what is essentially just getting him in a box and being wheeled out of shot to the left. <laughs> But yeah, so they go to find nephew George, mm. but they find that he's not there because why? He's off to a funeral of his uncle. Ah, uh, yeah, in Brighton, and that's confusing as hell, isn't it? Because his uncle died in London. Was it London? I wasn't really paying attention. Henry, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, good. But but no, not that uncle. The one we saw at the beginning of the episode. Anthony. And that means they're both dead. Mm-hmm. Double uncle death. So guess who's off to a funeral? It's Pyro and Hastings. Mm-hmm. So George wanders off over after and introduces himself. After the funeral? Uh, yes. And good old Poirot is, uh, got his lying shoes on, doesn't he? Does, he does, yeah. <laughs> Among the first times we've seen him actually like spin a ruse, like lie about his identity completely. Like mm. I mean, he still says his name is Pyro, so and he is like one of the most famous detectives ever. Well, the best lies are grounded in truth. That's true, <laughs> but he, he does say that you know I knew your uncle from a long time ago, and I'm here to pay my respects. And oh, I'd be fascinated to talk to you about your relationship with them and that kind of thing. Um, he does uh, mistake the housekeeper who saw it at the start of the episode for. The wife of Anthony. Do you think that was on purpose? I think he did. Yeah, I think he was trying yeah. to find out who she was. But we find out that uh, the wife, so the woman in the painting, died ten years ago. Thank uh, goodness her boobs will live on. Yeah, indeed. Um, Someone's office, <laughs> the agent's office. <laughs> um, uh, but she is uh, very. They go out for tea, and um, and George Lorimer sort of sits. Very close to Hastings. I don't really that, but that was my Hastings spicy little ship. Hastings is not at ease, and he manages to annoy Mrs. Hill as well, who's mm. the housekeeper. By the way, British people who were children in the sort of the tail end of the 80s and the early 90s will know her from playing Gladys in Maid Marian and Her Merry Men. Huh. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's where mm. I knew her from. Yeah, and then uh, it transpires that the housekeeper was left out of all kinds of wills, so she's not getting anything from this. 
only Anthony's really. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. I don't think she goes around like checking in on people. <laughs> oh, that's true. You're right. She says there is no will, in fact. Mm. Mm. Which means it's all going to go to the nephew. Did we miss out Poirot's massive sugar habit? Which oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The teeth problem. Because, <laughs> like, I mean, this comes up again and again. He has such a fondness for, like, sweet treats. And he's basically a, a honeybee at this point, or like a little hummingbird just sipping at nectar the entire time. But as he's talking to George Lorimer, he's just shoveling tea into his teacup. Sugar. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I thought I'd said it's mad with tea. <laughs> but yeah, I think it must be like a super saturated solution by that point. But mm. anyway. Then mm. on the way out, Hastings uh, does pause to buy a paper to get up to date on the cricket scores. We should, we should, like, the, it, there's been a test match, basically, or there is on, an ongoing test match this entire episode. And almost every scene that has Hastings in it also has Hastings re- receiving some either good or bad news from the test yeah. match. His Stay mind is blown. By paper boys. <laughs> yes, yeah. Every bit of news just shocks him to his core. <laughs> just, <laughs> this has happened. Oh my god, this has happened. And I think uh, the cricket blather that he puts forth is intentionally obtuse, right? I didn't follow any of it, and I assumed I wasn't supposed to. No, I think it is very much a kind of like this is Hastings is. Not necessarily his out. latest sort of faddy, uh, jargon-laden <laughs> interest, but, like, he is, um, it's his, uh, like, he is incapable of talking about a thing without getting super jargony, and I think <laughs> that's kind of, it's endearing, but it also absolutely loses everybody, and also he has no sense of propriety, propriety <laughs> because, um, he goes over to explain all of this to Poirot while Poirot is trying to sensitively ask questions of the uh, the the housekeeper. housekeeper who is sort of angry but is also bereaved. So it's like, you know, then Hastings comes over brandishing <laughs> the paper, talking about the Australian like <laughs> cricket behaviour. So I was like, well. Hastings has sort of managed to find a very 30s way of being that friend who's always on their phone refreshing like a timeline of some kind (laughs) like he's just always finding a paper boy to refresh his stock of cricket chat yeah but they leave Mrs Hill there listening to Sussex by the Sea as played by an orchestra in a bandstand Mm. which I thought was quite Mm. sweet but also on the nose falls into the yeah on the nose category that this entire (laughs) episode has Mm. has embraced wholeheartedly mm, quite but yeah and then um so oh no this is where hastings picks up poirot's lies he's kind of he's always a bit um disapproving and i think this is what um were you here when we were talking about that tom because like i think i was saying to chris that hastings really doesn't lie like he <laughs> finds it kind of inconceivable, whereas Poirot is fine with bending the truth if it gets him closer to mm, the truth. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you do have these moments every now and again. It's quite nice to have like a, a neat demonstration of when Hastings is like, "You lied. <laughs> <laughs> you told a lie." <laughs> it's it feels like it's, it's part of Hastings' simplicity. He's very straightforward and just like I don't think he, he would have the wit to lie. Really. <laughs> But yeah, yes. <laughs> but yeah, and then so because they're just wandering along by the chop shop, aren't they? And then trying to figure out like where one would go to get changed in a hurry. Oh yeah, so oh yeah, that's the next step. Of this, as isn't one it? person come out as another. Yeah, so they they, they they backtrack the walk from the restaurant to 
Henry Henry's house. Mm. This is where you meet my contender for um, extra. extra of the week, <laughs> yep. which is uh, Jim Branning from EastEnders, um, who is currently starring in this as a uh, a toilet attendant who has really off- cheerful toilet attendant, <laughs> loving his work. He's just- time mopping a urinal (laughs) while wearing a beret and a yellow cravat (laughs) it's just just dressed up in like half the artist's garb and then the other half of the artist's garb is just hanging on a hook nearby it's all just exactly (laughs) as left i just quite liked how he was kind of like he's cheery and then he's really defensive and then poro (laughs) gives him a few quid for like and just takes all of the stuff that he found in the toilets away with him. And, like, he goes back to being cheery again. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, because this guy <laughs> says that he, he found all this garb in the toilet and um, he kept it because he was hoping to sell it for a few bob. And so Poirot gives him those said few bob. Yeah. Um, Although I sort of... I was surprised by... So usually David Suchet's Poirot is so um fastidious about anything that he perceives as being you know unclean or anything so it it seemed odd to me that he didn't sort of get fussy about touching any of the stuff that had been in the public <laughs> toilet or about going in there the Do you know what I mean? <laughs> mm, yeah like because he's such a kind of it he he's such a germaphobe right yeah 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 so it just seemed a bit odd that he was just happily, you know... <laughs> Scooping up them toilet clothes. Ripping clothes off a, a, a toilet attendant, <laughs> wandering <laughs> off. But, you know, I suppose. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, so they're sort of chatting away and uh, he then turns turns to that piece of paper. He's at home now and he, he has that little piece of paper that we haven't seen since the beginning of the episode, the one that he gouged out of a... A thing and um does anything else happen in that scene he's just peering at that is it it does does hastings get sad about the cricket i mean hastings is sad about the cricket again because he's listening to the radio um and it should be like hastings comes in and the radio is on Mm. so pyro is listening to the cricket is the kind of a little bit of subtext there oh yeah like um and um and then that's when is it then that Oh, that's when I think Poirot figures he's solved it because yeah. he asks Hastings to tell Miss Lemon to phone Jap, right? Yeah. And Hastings is like really reluctant to leave the room because he's trying to earwig on the cricket's course. He's sort of <laughs> backing out and sort of trying to still hear what's going on. Mm. <laughs> um, and this, I guess, ushers us into the end game because Poirot has figured it out. Mm-hmm. Although what I love is that they have decamped the entire brand new forensics department to just be on the music hall stage. <laughs> everyone's expensive equipment is now just <laughs> set up in, you know, Bethnal Green on this Theatre, yeah. <laughs> Waiting for Lorimer to arrive. So if yeah. you hadn't pegged Lorimer from a while ago, then here's your chance to be right about that. <laughs> um, so he arrives and there are... There are, uh, you know, and he sees Poirot and says, Poirot, what are you doing here? Because obviously last time we saw Poirot, Poirot lied to him. <laughs> and who, who are your friends? And uh, he's he's rightly cornered. Mm-hmm. So we go through the, the basic forensic clues, don't we? The, the strands of hair from the wig and the strands of hair from the mm. perp. 
Yeah, I wondered if this was, um, I was expecting this to pay off and it didn't, uh, but I thought it might be a, a sort of Columbo style bluff. Like Columbo's thing is that he always claims to have evidence he doesn't have and then yeah, the person confesses that. as a result of that and then he reveals, ah, oh, I, I did, couldn't really prove that. That's not a thing the forensics can do yet. <laughs> <laughs> or, that basically I, happens though. Cause yeah, cause it doesn't, he, he says, uh, you know, that, uh, the forensics person says, oh, we've got this, um, the gray hair from the wig and then the dark hair from the, the person who wore it and we can test that. Um, so they, they are sort of threatening, you mm. know, if you were, if you were the perpetrator, you'd be thinking, oh shit, I'm, uh, they're going to get me on this. And then, yeah, he does. He shows him the postmark on the thing as well. Cause that's, that's yeah. important from the timing, right? Yeah. So the, the perpetrator, uh, sent the letter a day before and then at the crime scene modified the postmark to make it change it from the 15th to the 16th so that it would ostensibly prove that this guy was um uh still alive on the 16th um th- this post though mm-hmm. hmm. so he's doing this before the post would have arrived that day and that's why this is worth doing. So what <laughs> so, happens is... No one finds um, him for three days. Couldn't he have staged the crime scene after this? So what he does is he um, sends the thing so it'll have a postmark of the 15th. Then when he arrives to murder the guy early on the 16th, I think, um, the postmark is from the late delivery. So like mm-hmm. the 9.30 delivery. Yeah. And so... By changing it to the 16th, it pushes the time of death to the evening of that day. So he can just kill him, like, in the middle of the afternoon, put the letter in his pocket, and it looks like he's just gone downstairs a lot later that day to pick up the post, has it on his person, and then falls down the stairs. If he just sent it for the 16th and then killed him early on the 16th before the letters arrived, then just gone back the next day, the letter would be there, right, and postmarked correctly. It's because, like, but then... There's, there's a risk the, that he gets found between the, those things happening. Yeah. So I think there's a risk of being found, but also the time of death is... I, I think there's only so inaccurate that you can be. Like, you can tell that it was, I don't know, 48 hours to 70... You know, like, it's... The I body, think you mean? that that... Yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I'm saying, the, like, he would still say that he'd still be staging it to make it look like he died that evening. And he would still kill him the same at the same time, and stage it to look like it was the same time that evening that he died. But just in terms of getting the letter there, he could have legitimately sent it so that it arrived that day, and then but, put it in his hand afterwards. But then he'd have had to go back in, right? Yeah. So but knowing that he's a recluse and that he doesn't get found for three days, obviously he doesn't know that at the time. But I mean, yeah, I mean, there are ways that you could have made it simpler. I mean, I guess he couldn't have particularly guaranteed that Dulcie wouldn't show up at some point no, or true. like I yeah I mean I don't know why you wouldn't do that it's I think this is one of the the perils of blowing up a you know a magazine <laughs> short story yeah. to a you know an hour long tv episode you sort of it gets sort of simultaneously bloated and stretched yeah so yeah like I think that's a fair point but yeah, the the logic of it is mm. to. I guess he would have also just he would have had to be back in London, right? For the, I mean, he would have had to be at his various shows, like, for, right? Like he couldn't have just taken 
all of those different times. Well, because he tries to use exactly that as a, as a alibi. Mm. The fact that he was in the shows around the time of, purported time of death is the thing, right? Yeah. So it's one of these things he's trying to set up. Um, but the thing that really gets him is not that. It's the, um, uh, his, as you put it, Tom, his typewriter has a signature. His <laughs> <laughs> handwriting, strangely. <laughs> So um, they find a typing sample from the typewriter in his office that matches the address on the envelope, mm. uh, which might, I don't know if that would be enough to actually like convict somebody because <laughs> presumably typewriters are mass produced, right? <laughs> However, it is enough to prompt the basically self-damning attempt at flight. Yeah. But he doesn't go very far. <laughs> so something that's interesting is that obviously they are mass produced, but typewriters develop idiosyncrasies. And so... I think a fair few novels or shows or whatever have actually used, you know, things like, I don't know, the S key getting stuck or, you know, mm. particular, like, things being misaligned. You know, it's like you, they, they do end up with a kind of... Yeah, fair enough. Um, and, and also I think, you know, you can maybe tell, you know, particular ribbons that have been used for the for the ink and all of that stuff. I bet, like, yeah. the alignment could be slightly off on from model yeah. to model and also a lot of them had their own versions of emojis that wouldn't be quite standard <laughs> so you can yeah. help on that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so it's kind of i think it's not that far-fetched but i would be genuinely interested to talk to somebody who's like an expert in like forensic history that knew mm. you know what techniques were available when because mm. i obviously don't but yeah this could also be a forensic style bluff where they're just <laughs> pretending they can check that and actually no <laughs> typewriters yeah. just make the same thing <laughs> but yeah so it's at that point that he realizes he is uh rumbled rumbled mm. but what does he do <laughs> he, he goes to sprint sort of like he's gonna run away but he gets <laughs> the edge of the stage which he's already on so it's like two and a half feet away <laughs> someone trying to bright light at him and he just sort of stops and some bobbies emerge in the corners just it's like as if oh i've been seen now yeah. <laughs> but they could already see you i think it's more that like okay so that i don't get why he stops running as soon as you know like he stops running in a really dramatic like dracula covering his face like, <laughs> way. like i work in the theater but my one weakness stage lights <laughs> but, and like i get why all of the policemen were where they were because they were essentially like on every exit right so yeah. it was essentially just a kind of okay well you can't get out so what are you gonna do but yeah like the whole thing of, of just oh no light my weakness yeah. <laughs> um sure they didn't have flashbangs in those days so <laughs> um yes and the other the other point here is that oh no we, this is the next scene isn't it because that, that's you know that's suspect court mystery solved yeah, like, job done. Well done, everybody. Time for a celebratory dinner. And also, I think it's just quite nice that Japs had this little demonstration of, look, you know, your forensic department doesn't mean that, like, everybody who is a detective is completely obsolete. I mean, Japs had nothing to do this episode, but Poirot's fine. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. He's not going to be, you know... Jap is most useful for delivering all of these forensic people. <laughs> loaded them up into the van into the bobby van from the previous the jackmobile from oh, the previous yeah. episode lads 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 yeah. <laughs> off they go <laughs> um but speaking of lads 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 we round off the episode <coughs> with a celebratory dinner back at the bishop's chop house mm -hmm. right just a just a fun dinner with your best mate the chief of police and your dentist <laughs> yeah why is the dentist there like <laughs> i'm Hastings, here too again <laughs> hastings and jap i get but He's like checking in on his latest dental. It is, but it's like they just invented. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, 
you know, a day ago was rendering Pryor unable to eat. <laughs> um, and they discuss, but they discuss one strange detail, which is that, uh, obviously, um, thingy, uh, Larimer had done a dress rehearsal for his great performance by pretending to be his uncle in that same restaurant on the Monday previous, which is something that Molly had said in her exposition rattle, which was, you know, the, the attempt for a, what would ultimately be a fatally flawed performance. That, but, so there's a timeline thing here that I wanted to clarify. Mm-hmm. So my understanding of it is that um Anthony Gascoigne, mm-hmm. the Brighton uncle, died on Friday night. Mm-hmm. Friday, 1 p.m., right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um Then Larimer kills Henry Gascoigne the following day mm-hmm. on Friday. Saturday. Saturday, sorry, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um And then he chills on Sunday. No, he goes to Brighton on Sunday because yes, that's go- as early as he could get yeah, down. Yeah, because he, he was busy killing his uncle, right? Yes. But that means that if his dress rehearsal had been on the previous Monday, then he was planning to kill his uncle before his other uncle died. Hmm. Which means that, and he's only the person in line to receive the money if both uncles are dead. But um, mm. Anthony's been really ill for a while. Right. Cause I, he's, I, been, yeah. he's been on his way out. It was more that he had to make sure that the other uncle... Was dead, and I think he wanted to make sure that it just didn't look suspicious, right? Yeah. So he's, because Poirot actually notes this. He's like, he's been planning this for a long time. Right. Old okay. While. That makes a good place. I'm not looking to pick holes. I just genuinely wasn't quite sure about how that lined up. No, no. Cause when he's talking about, oh yeah, he, he knew the man quite well and knew how to dress and Poirot's just like, yeah, he's been planning this for, for a bunch of time. Mm. But, um, yeah. Also shout out to the, uh, gigantic napkin. Oh yeah. This is the first <laughs> canon appearance, but one of the things that first charmed me about Pyro when we started watching somewhere <laughs> in the middle of the seasons, um, uh, which is Pyro's absolutely massive napkin or like neck, neck. Is it a napkin if you took it into your collar rather than on your lap? Yeah. You can like, cause it's not a nap then. No, hang on. But that's not what... It's a lap. Lapkin. It's not a lapkin. lapkin. That's not, it's not a lapkin. Yeah, that's it becomes a chestkin every time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, my my brain just done a stupid thing. Um, No, but it's still massive. It's like a kite-sized piece of material. <laughs> well, it's essentially like he's... It's, it's like a duvet. Yeah. So you have to sort of take a gamble when you decide where to put this thing as to like, do I tend to spill more food on my chest or on my lap? <laughs> and do I possibly need both? Yeah, indeed. I think... It's so weird because I think it speaks to, again, to Poirot's fastidiousness, but also that napkin never gets dirty. So it's like he doesn't even <laughs> yeah. need it because he's so terrified of getting the, the protector garment <laughs> dirty that it, I just, oh. Just imagine how surreal this dinner would be, given that it's the dentist and Poirot and Hastings, if Poirot still could not eat. And so Poirot wants Hastings to describe all the food to him, but his dentist wants to see Poirot's teeth. <laughs> and Hastings and Poirot's wearing a massive napkin for no reason. Yeah. Um, Poor old chap, he'd have nothing to do Jap is like, And Jap is there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm not with them. Um, I get a table on my own. <laughs> then uh, some people leave the table next to them, which leaves behind a newspaper. Mm. So, um, so, so Hastings' final Dives status update of the, of the episode could take place. <laughs> He's essentially got some good news for once about yeah. the Australia-England test cricket scores. Which is that England have miraculously pulled ahead. But it's at this point that Poirot plays his episode-ending... Manic Pixie Dream Max- Detective. Yeah, ultimate gamble. Basically, this is, it's at this point that Poirot uses his ultimate. <laughs> <sighs> he knows 
everything about cricket immediately and has the entire time yep and he sort of he basically explains that of course england are doing a lot better because australians aren't used to playing on boggy ground because they have nice weather essentially and so their style of uh of play will not be suited to any of this but he dresses it up in suitable amounts of jargon and Hastings's jaw is on the floor <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I do like all the facial reactions to this are great just around the whole table. Like yeah. the dentist is loving it. He's just completely on board with this and Hastings is completely stunned. Jap is also there. <laughs> Jap also present. Oh, I think um yeah, the, the dentist just seems to have a, have a great time no matter what. Like, <laughs> yeah. Gossiping when Poirot to know. can't talk. He's, you know, just laughing at Poirot's jokes. It's like, uh, yeah, I can see why he hangs out with the dentist. Yeah, but basically Poirot just systematically owns Hastings in this moment. Do you think he owns him or do you think he's just sort of been saving it as kind of a nice, like, reveal? Like, I don't know. I think it's, I don't think, I think it can be both. I think if you, if you, <laughs> if you hold back some information about something, if you hold back the information that you are an expert in something that your best friend loves and is constantly telling you about, and you don't let them know that, and you hold that until a point where you can basically style on them in front of your dentist and Jap, <laughs> who is also there, then you have sort of, even if it's a fun surprise for Hastings, but have you never done that? Like, so no, I've I mean, not pretended not to know anything about cricket <laughs> to impress your dentist. But I have done that thing of like when I've known quite a lot about something and someone has assumed that I haven't, I've held back and held back and held back and then had my nice kind of <laughs> moment of well, actually, and like properly explained a sort of nuance of a mm. thing in the way that makes it clear that like don't underestimate this mm. but i you know i, I felt like with pyro is a, a bit fonder you know like it was just a kind of like oh do you know what like <laughs> yeah but i mean he is also the same pyro who says please do not be you know please don't be stingy with your praise for me <laughs> and he does look very pleased with himself I think he appreciates Poirot jokes. He doesn't like Hastings jokes. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't think they're funny. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what Miss Lemon's doing. She's yeah. just like having a great time with her filing system and like listening to a raffles omnibus. I think she might be. <laughs> just like, oh. Big bottle of Lambrini. <laughs> You're obsessed with her and She's, Lambrini. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> She's having a nice time. That brings us to the end of the episode. It does. It does. What did you reckon? This one, I think, was a bit small in in scope for me. There, there wasn't a lot of room for the mystery to go. It was pretty much had to be the thing that it was. Yeah. And like I say, they sort of they try to suggest the model and the, and the agent could be suspects, but they didn't. Neither seemed particularly compelling at any point. So they never really succeeded in in suggesting it was anyone other than their nephew. Mm. Yeah, I um, I. Like, as with the very first episode, I could see it was a young, when they show the close up of the old man in the restaurant at the start, you see, oh, that's a young person dressed as an old person. Mm. And. The 20 year old, 40 year old. Yeah, it's a 20 year old, 40 year old. Yeah, well, he actually was a 40 year old, 20 year old. Yeah. Um, it was that problem again. And so there's that element of like, oh, okay, well, that's someone in disguise. And they're going to set up the twins thing, but it can't be twins because it's obviously a young person in disguise. Mm. So it's going to be a young person or either a young person or not one of those two, as in the beard is fake and, and that stuff. And so I thought it might be the model, but that didn't seem likely after a certain point. Hmm. What I thought it might, I thought it might turn out to be the housekeeper. 
for a while. Mm. Um, because she maybe would have gone, well, you know, fuck you, you have not left me anything. There's no will. I'm going to kill your brother. I take everything. <laughs> Makes or, sense. Or something like that, maybe. But, it, you know, you know, Tom's right. It, it did point very strongly at, you know, the, essentially the, the first guy you see that isn't one of the people dying. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's, uh, um, so yes, I think, yeah, you're right. Like a little bit thin on the ground in terms of like mystery stuff. But again, I, I think one of the things that keeps making Pyro so good is it's just full of weird, side plots and sort of yeah. strange little character things that kind of tick away in the background and kind of make it more than just the mystery. So yes, I did enjoy this one. So in terms of the 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 difference between the magazine story and the the TV show, what struck me was that in the um so in the in the story as it was written, um Hastings isn't there, Miss Lemon's not there, Shap's not there, you know, it's, it really is just a, a vignette basically it's Poirot going to dinner with his dentist sort of and then following up on just this odd thing that you know this this person ordered so far outside what they usually have um so he goes and checks it out and it happens to be a a murder basically Mm. um but the way that it's presented in the written version it it's a lot more just oh well Poirot just sort of can't help noticing these things Mm. everywhere around him and you know like he, he doesn't necessarily have to go into a lot of detail or you know expend the resources that he does in the tv episode it's he just sort of keeps he just can't switch it off because he just sees these things and kind of he has this curiosity peaked, he investigates them, it turns out that he was right and then he just sort of moves on. It was just sort of an evening's work and a thing that he gets like distracted by. Although I think the dentist has a or, he's not the dentist in the thing, but his uh, friend has like a line where it's like you've made up your mind to see crime everywhere or you know, <laughs> it's, it's something like that, like when he points out how odd it is or he sort of is clearly taken by it. But I sort of quite liked how in in that format it just sort of makes a bit more sense of Poirot's life like mm. how he has this almost like this this affliction of seeing these things mm. and just sort of looking for mystery everywhere just or just that he can't even help seeing it and just sort of puts his mind to rest by investigating it until his curiosity is satisfied and then just moves on do mm. you know what i mean it kind of yeah this the tv episodes uh for me, didn't have that feeling because it was so much the waitress's curiosity. It was like, she's decided this is a mystery and she just delivers yeah. it to bar on a plate. Here's th- this weird thing. Yeah. I think that that was inelegant, like that amount of exposition, particularly because a lot of the information gets repeated in other contexts, right? Well, the weird thing is, is that obviously she actually explains it in more of a sort of natural way in the in the book so it was kind of odd that one of the things that they did seem to condense or hurry up was her role in the in the tv show like of mm. all the things they made that clunkier mm. yeah yeah <laughs> there's a murder she wrote episode in which they address the fact that jessica fletcher keeps noticing murders all around her and wherever she goes there seems to be murders uh she's at a dinner party and she someone asks her how she comes up with her stories and she says that um uh, she just, uh, takes stories and situations around her and then just tries to imagine murders happening involved in it. <laughs> and, uh, 
this is after she's fallen asleep at the table and had a whole dream where, in which she imagines they're basically the same episode, but there's a murder involved. <laughs> and um, <laughs> after she wakes up, she explains that that's how she gets all her ideas is just like <laughs> superimposing murders into the normal situations she actually encounters, hmm. which means the whole series is fictional, <laughs> even within oh, the wow. fiction. <laughs> that's crazy. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, oh, also, uh, did we settle on an extra of the week or are we all going to go with different people? Hmm. I think um maybe Jim Branning has too big of a role because he actually has a speaking role mm. as well. Yeah, I well, I think so. well, I mean, like, but the 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 incredible Porter in the first very first episode. Oh, I suppose so. He, yeah, he had a pretty speaking role as well. Speaking role is fine. It has to be like a one-off character, I think. Mm. In which case, um actually, I really like in the final scene when they're all at dinner, when they're all hooting and laughing over Poirot's sort of. um mighty knowledge of cricket there's one dude at a table behind them who's just looking over like oh my god could you keep it down <laughs> yeah okay I, I think i want him okay <laughs> that seems reasonable yep you two difference or are we uh, it'll be the wizard for me because of course it was uh, hmm. yeah it was pretty good i can go for either of those <laughs> <laughs> sure well, in that case, I think, is that all? Mm-hmm. Or is there anything, any any burning questions that anyone has left for this? If you're that that good friends at your dentist, let us know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or like, I, yeah, or, or don't. I don't know. <laughs> like, is that weird? Are we intruding on their friendship? Well, no, we're not telling point? them to. I mean, it's not like... You literally just told them well, to. Well, I mean, it, in, the, in the manner of a request, I have no... Way of enforcing that. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I suppose so. Like, if you're a dentist, do you like to see people's teeth in action? Is that a thing that gives you gives you massive amounts of pleasure? Did you, a person, manage to understand anything Hastings said about cricket during that entire thing? Like, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think sometimes people have wanted to get in touch so i think we've just been using the questions at creightoncrowbar.com yeah if you'd like to send an email um, or even tweet email address um so we you know might set up a different thing for that in the future but until then mm-hmm. use that one um and next time i believe it's oh which one is the next one is it trouble at sea if it's trouble at sea prepare for my favorite extra in any poirot <laughs> No, I don't know whether you're thinking of... I think yours is... Um, I think yours no. might be the one after. Well, I'm definitely thinking of Trouble at Sea, so it just depends when in the order that comes. Anyway. <laughs> um, yes, well, in that case, uh, extras galore <laughs> in the in the medium future. <laughs> anyway, It's yes. the name of the mystery. Shush now. Uh, we should probably wrap this up quicker than last time, and it's all on me. So, uh, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> what? Oh, wait, no, you can follow us as individuals. Yes, sorry. <laughs> Look, if you're going to be fussy, you can do I this. wasn't being fussy. You did a, a huff gesture. I did, I, did, I did a sort of face. <laughs> uh, I confess you've done the face. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. Where can people find you then? Uh, at C. Thurston on Twitter. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Tom, where do you live I'm on at Twitter? Pentadact, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. Nice. Have you ever had dinner with a dentist? Uh, not knowingly. 
interesting. <laughs> and I'm uh, at Philippa War, which is P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-R-R. Also, I just want to give a quick shout out to my sister who listens to this. <laughs> Hello, Rosie. Hi, Rosie. <laughs> Hello, Rosie. <laughs> right. Now we're actually going to say goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.